City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM and that was PJ Harvey with Victory from the Peel Sessions. How's it going, Kev? Let me think, Corey. I'm going... Oh, you won't have to think about it. It's, um, I'm going OK. I'm going well, yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're Corey Green. Of course, I'm Kevin Healy and this is City Limits and it's the fourth Wednesday of the month, Corey. No, fifth Wednesday. It's the 29th or something today, isn't it? Whatever it is. Very nice. And um, therefore, it's the... Uh, it's one plus 28 year. It's 29. And... Um, it's the fifth Wednesday this month, and we were going to have. We said last week we'd have some discussions on economic issues, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, one of them, Dr. Phil Griffiths, your um, yeah, he, he couldn't he, make it on a Wednesday morning. So we, you're going to do a pre-interview with him, and we're going to play that. We'll play that on the fourth Wednesday next month, and we're going to get John Passant, our regular commentator on tax and other issues, on as well, who's also very entertaining, and he'll come on. We'll get them both on the fourth Wednesday next month. So. Uh, today, though, we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to have another in our series, our fourth and last, in fact, in the series on um, uh, on, on on healthy and sustainable cities, and we're going to be talking to Pam Morgan, um, who um, is going to look at greening cities, growing vegetables, and that sort of thing. Pam's been to Cuba. Pam is one of the people responsible for setting up that program in Cuba in Havana, which does wonderful work on those things. She was a former. For a long time, um, she ran the. She was um, manager of the children's farm in Collingwood, so she's you know, her, and has worked in local government on all this. So she's going to talk about greening cities, and we're going to talk in the second half with Dr. Kate Shaw, one of our, another one of our regular regulars, uh, a foundation member of the People's Committee for Melbourne. In fact, we started this program many years ago, and um, and Kate uh, is 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 been involved in a play that's coming up at the Malthouse next month about. Uh, homelessness and and housing etc and and urban planning issues and she was a consultant to the uh, to the playwrights on that and she's going to talk about that play and maybe broader issues to do with planning etc so that's today's program Corey sounds great doesn't it sound great oh it sounds great have you read pour- anything <coughs> in the newspaper lately of interest? oh have I what but look I'll pour myself a cup of tea you want a cup of tea or are you still on the hour oh, no thanks no, no okay thanks. I'll just pour one here I'll just have a listen to this Corey there we go there's tea being poured isn't that wonderful there we are and um, you know we could automate that you know I could pre-record the sound <laughs> of tea being poured it's not the same Corey. we could it's play it same. not the same <laughs> Not the same. Um, I, I, one issue I thought were, uh, interesting because um, it's the the leader of press, press these days is a Murdoch part of the Murdoch Empire. Um, the local rag that we've got in, or I've got in Moreland, um, we mentioned some weeks ago that the uh, the government was planning to sell the land where the former Indigenous school was on mm-hmm. um, up at Glenroy, and. Um, the Ballot Maroop School, um, Indigenous School, and we complained about the fact that this could be used for other purposes. Well, ironically, uh, not well, not ironically perhaps, but strangely, the Murdoch Media Local one has taken up the issue when they're actually running a campaign to save that for future Indigenous use. Hmm. And uh, hopefully the Moreland Council might buy it. The state is now giving them a reduced price. I mean, why they can't just transfer it, I've got absolutely no idea. 
but they still want the Wollongong Council to pay some money for it. But if that can happen, it'll be saved. But it's interesting, and in that the and if people live locally in that area, the pay, local papers give you a way of uh, joining in and supporting the campaign. So I just found that interesting, and let's hope they can save it anyway for for some sort of use by the indigenous communities in that area. So that's bloody good. In another yeah. surprising uh, twist on the mainstream media. Um, Fox News was talking about the latest uh, black death in custody in America and said that they suspect police corruption. Good heavens. I know. Who yeah. else going topsy-turvy? Yeah, still she did cross a line without giving a signal. Well, well that's obviously she should have just been shot on oh, sight. Well, it's, it's obviously a capital offence, that's right. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Simple as that. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, I mean, I'm Imagine if she had a double parked. Thing. It's atrocious that someone can do that and then the copper... And if you see the... I mean, what, what we're seeing these days, of course, is, is people taking films of these things. So that would have been all sorts of excuses about how terrible she was and how she treated the copper. Mm. Uh, other than that, peep, someone took a shot. And again, in all these cases, you see how the police actually act. The only place where we haven't got film is where she actually died in the cell mm. and what actually happened. They're saying she suicided, but, uh, but uh, we're taking their word for it, aren't we? Well, there's actually well, we're um, a lot of we're not taking their word for it. interesting photographic evidence of that. Um, for one thing, well, this isn't photographic, but for one thing, she managed to hang herself on a wall that she was taller than um, using a bag from a bin, and the bin shouldn't have been there because it wasn't tied down. Um, and after they um, killed her, I'm um, oh, sorry, after she, sorry, excuse yes, me. Sorry, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. After she allegedly killed herself, um, they had time to somehow replace the bag in that bin, which was very mm. suspicious. Mm. And the um, plastic bag shouldn't have been strong enough to hold her weight as well. So, And then also the um, mugshot they have on her, she actually um, appears to be dead already in the mugshot, which is, first of all, disturbing and yes. second of all, incriminating. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty ordinary, isn't it? Um, I was going to talk about this this economic um, forum that the Fin Review and other people, all sorts of business groups, plus the ACTU are sponsoring, and it's a pity that the ACTU, mm. but I'll, I'll do more on that next week cause we're just because of time issues. Um, but it's um, it's a real worry to me, and you've got, um, you know, they've, they've got, again, the ACTU, well, let's hope they don't, but what they're saying so far, it sounds like they're prepared to... Uh, you know, they're saying we have to all get together, all sides of the equation, etc., and tackle the problems facing Australia. And one of the, they're running a series of articles about it, and one by Jeff Allen, who was one of the real instigators of the New Writers, it was then called way back in the um, in the beginnings of neoliberalism. Mm. He talks about how the ACTU, Bill Kelty, and even the um, Australian Council of Social Services all worked together to reform, and reform for them, of course, meant all the neoliberal reforms, the so-called, that have happened, including the GST, and how um, it, was, it was a case of Hawke, Keating, Howard, the ACE, Bill Kelty at the ACTU, Robert Fitzgerald at uh, Council for Social Services, and people like Jeff himself uh, all worked together to bring this great reform, and we need that sort of cooperation now from everybody. Isn't that wonderful? I was um, looking at the refugee issue, as anyone who's um, awake in Australian politics at the moment is. And so they had the accord in the 80s, the late 80s, and they started uh, mandatory detention of refugees in 1991. And it's a pretty uh, 
it's a pretty tried and true tactic of the ruling class to whip up some racism when you want to get uh, unpopular reforms through. And then all through that time, they were privatising things. They were having the recession that we had to have, all that sort of stuff. So I'm wondering with the increasing worse treatment of refugees, if there's um, also increasing uh, so-called reforms that they want us to stomach. Probably are, probably are. In fact, on that issue, I watched, I go back to where you came from last night and mm. the first part of, and did you watch it? Or you? No. No. And, um, I wish it, Pride uh, and Prejudice. Yeah, right. It, uh, you're probably better off in some ways. But it, it's uh, uh, having watched the first two, I thought, I don't think I want to watch another one of those because there's a bit of a formula, actually. But nonetheless, I did watch it, and it's still worth watching, and it's still interesting. And it show, the worrying thing is it shows there are people out there like that who believe all that crap that the the most extreme of the people on that program believe, and you imagine they're not, not alone in this society, which is a real worry. Um, just before we go to our first guest, the one thing I did want to raise, because at the, at the ALP conference of the weekend, one issue that was raised was the, um, the Buffhead tax, named after that American uh, investor Warren Buffhead. And um, the uh, and you know it's only a, everything's going to be considered. You're not going to actually do it, but nonetheless, it's a it's a rate thing of it's a way of getting some money out of the rich who pay no tax. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that Price Waterhouse Cooper, which is one of the big four international, as we know, accounting and now these days almost legal companies, they came out and attacked it and said, look, most wealthy people pay huge amount of tax by their business entities. Uh, Hmm. um, Which is better for the economy, a taxpayer who just pays income tax and spends all their after-tax income or a taxpayer who pays less personal income tax because of funds spent taking commercial risks to create employment an opportunity for 10 other people. See, so that's a, that's a great argument for people not paying tax, don't you think? Mm. And tucked away in this article, it points out in 2012-13, there were 55 millionaires who paid no tax. No tax? No tax, whatever. Um, and how did that provide opportunities for other people? Uh, well, they must have. 55 millionaires would have employed 10 other people. People that would have been five fifty jobs they would have created. So that was good. There you go, um, five fifty menial yeah, cleaning, well, or whatever. No, pool cleaning. No, you, that's your point. I mean, they probably were very important jobs. Um, <laughs> oh right, right. Yes, and tax office data shows millionaires rely heavily on deductions for negative geared property and charitable donations to minimise their tax. In eleven, twelve, forty people with earnings over a million and taxable income of less than six thousand. So they earn a, earn a million, but they had a taxable income of six grand thanks to their tax advisors on whom they spent $1.4 million. <laughs> but that's tax deductible anyway. <laughs> so there you are. Well, Look, someone's we'll go, getting rich. We'll go to our first guest. We've got to talk to Pam Morgan about greening cities much better than the rubbish we've been talking about. Um, we're going to go to attract. This is DJ Shadow with the number song. You're listening to 3CR on 8.55 a.m. The time is 9.15 and we have a guest. We do indeed. Pam Morgan's on the line. Pam, I mentioned at the opening of the show, Pam uh, is a former manager of the Children's Fund. Were you the first manager, Pam, out there? Or? Uh, almost. There oh, were right. a couple that, of months that's, that's before a no, then. I there. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but for a long time, and of course, you, as we said, you've been to Cuba and um, has helped establish those wonderful gardens in Havana, etc., where people... Have, you know, have subsistence gardens, etc. Um, and um, you've done a lot of work here in Melbourne on that. So we're talking about greening cities as part of our program on this, uh, looking at sustainable cities. Uh, what's your idea of a green city, Pam? Well, I, I guess I, my passion is more about 
food-producing greenery than just being green. But my um, my idea of a, a green city in that sense is one where food growing is visible. In it's in your face everywhere. So we we have all this problem with um, health, lack of. Uh, sufficient vegetable intake, we make glossy brochures, we do all this sort of marketing thing to try and get people to eat more vegetables in particular. But if you walked out your gate and you could see food growing and it was part of your everyday experience of what is around you, then I think that has much more impact than um, trying to educate people to do things properly. Mm. And how so do that's we... my idea. How do we get to that? Well, that's an interesting thing. There's quite a few councils around Melbourne who are exploring urban agriculture strategies, and Yarra and Darabin in particular, and Moreland is in the process, and I was actually at a meeting there last night. Um, but it's... Uh, I don't, I don't know. I think the, the standout examples, which are Cuba and um, another place will stand that I visited in Argentina, the city of Rosario, which is famed for its urban agriculture program, they've actually gone and looked throughout their city of what sort of areas are suitable for food growing. And then they've let people know about that so that if people are interested... In in, um, Argentina, they actually supported squatter settlement people to to develop an enterprise of growing food and they set up marketplaces in the city. And in Cuba, it was any piece of land that was vacant, you could go to your local government and say, what's doing with that piece of land? And they would hold a local neighbourhood meeting to see if it was really suitable for that, wasn't being used as a kid's playground or, you know, any other sort of use to the community. And if it was available, then it was a matter of days and you could sign up on some sort of cooperative um, form and then you'd get use of that land for as long as you pro- produced food on it. Mm. You were involved in the program at, in, in Cuba and I know in Havana you pointed out that you know the, even people rooftops, etc., any space they could find where they could grow, grow vegetables. Uh, could you tell us something about how, you know your role over there? Well, I worked for an NGO, so the the program is actually part of the um, Ministry of Agriculture. It's a whole department of urban agriculture with agricultural advisors. I worked for an NGO that uh, introduced permaculture into that program of the government, and we would hold workshops. We had a group of reference gardens throughout Havana because transport was a problem during to lack of petrol. So the best way for people to learn, again, was to be able to see what other people were doing. So we supported um, reference gardens in every municipality of Havana. So part of my role was that. Another part was um, uh, promoting or or getting the information out. So we we started a magazine, which is still going, and it has an environment focus as well as the food growing permaculture focus and um, and then we also ran classes so we I, I ran compost making classes at the botanic gardens for example that sort of thing where they also had food growing because they had a whole 
um, collection of food producing plants. So that I guess that was my role, and of course writing all the reports and um, trying to get more money from Ausaid to keep it going. I mean that's not possible anymore because their their focus is Asia Pacific mainly, and they certainly wouldn't be supporting Cuba. Mm. But at that time, it was I think one of the programs was named the opportunistic use of space in the city for growing food. <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking so of which, basically if there's <laughs> If there's sunshine and you've got access to water, you can create the soil. But basically it is that sort of the location where you get the right growing solar conditions for growing and then you you try and build something that within the city that Mm. can you can then grow food in it. And of course the advantages are are not just that you know the the being involved in growing food yourself, but also there's there's economic advantages and there's clearly food miles advantages, etc. in in um, in people doing this sort of thing. Well, yes, and I think I think we an interesting thing that they talked about in Cuba was efficiency of food growing. So our current agro system um, looks at efficiency in terms of reducing the amount of labour. So you. You do something with machines, you have to have wide rows, you have to, there's all these sort of conditions to suit the machine so that you don't have to have many people working there. In Cuba, they looked at efficiency in terms of uh, production per unit area of land. And so lots and lots of people could work intensively on an area of land and get great results. And it's even the Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, says that intensive farming practices, which are basically lots of people or, you know, human hands working in a place, um, are ten times more efficient than the um, agro-systems that we have. But not ten times as profitable? Not ten times as profitable. Ten times more efficient in food production. That's right. If you pick your own, you're not actually paying somebody to... uh at the supermarket or something, are you? And they in turn, yeah, well, they in turn aren't ripping off the producer in the first place. <laughs> I was just reading some st- statistics uh, the other day. They, they date back a little while, but um, I think it's uh, 1995 or something. But there's not much done by ABS on this sort of thing. So back then, 5% of the total fruit vegetable production of Australia was grown in backyards Mm. and that doesn't enter into any economic equations because it's not the monetary transaction and now there's but if you take that you go if you take that out of the in the environmental picture an extra five percent of demand on the industrial uh, agriculture system is huge and would have incredible uh, impacts on the greenhouse gas emissions Mm. And these days, of course, there's more and more schools taking up um, these sort of programs, etc. And uh, and community gardens are, are developing around the place. There's been a, you had one at the, at the children's farm, of course, for a long time ago. Um, are they are they a growing phenomenon or not a phenomenon? Are they a growing um, growing program in this country? Yes, they are both of them, and um, the the programs in schools are really interesting because it changes children's eating habits from a fairly young age. And I think that evidence is 
has come out that yes, they um, they take up, they eat more vegetables in particular, and that's the hard one in terms of a healthy community. Um, they children who've been through those programs do eat more vegetables than children who haven't, and they've been exposed to a wider variety, so they're able to you know be much more adaptable in their food um, interests. But in community gardens, you get the same. It's not much of the benefits of this sort of thing has has really been documented, but there's a few things coming out now, and I think um, one study where they looked at community gardens, gardeners as against non-community gardeners, um, including siblings and um, neighbours and so on, and there's definitely a, a whole range of um, health factors from mental health to BMI, you know, right through the range where mm. the community gardeners are shown to be healthier. This, but, the, but that's not really mm, talking about greening all that much. It's, it's not really, but it's on, on the on the downside. Um, unfortunately, at Brunswick North Primary, Coburg Primary, Thornbury Primary, recently uh, kids had fruit trees at gardens, and someone came and knocked them off, including the trees, which is a bit rough. Um, I suppose that's always a danger with these things, is it not? Look, it was a constant down at Collingwood Children's Farm um, that. There were obviously people who had a little market stall, I'd say, and so you just the plum tree would be full and just at the point you were going to pick it and it'd all be gone. Mm. And you just... I mean, my attitude to that was just plant more, really. I mean, you can't do anything about it. It's unpleasant. Um, but if you just keep planting more, more trees, they're not really that difficult. Or expensive to produce a mm. tree, you know, a fruit tree. In this case, so, the nursery and garden industry of Victoria has come out and um, and given them stuff um, to replace it, um, showing how kind they were. But I found interesting uh, the bloke from that from the industry said he was a strong supporter of school gardens, and he said there are so many subjects that you can use a garden with, such as science, chemistry, maths, and home economics. I found that interesting. That, you know, it's more than just growing fruit or vegetables. Yeah, yeah. Look, down at the children's farm, we had a, a fantastic teacher from West Richmond Primary. This is going back quite a few years, a while since I've been there. But um, she developed her whole curriculum around their visits to the children's farm. They came once a week and they... Everything. It was their... They'd write stories, they'd measure a few things, you know, she encompassed all of the areas of her teaching but through these visits to the children's farm. Mm. And you were going to say about this isn't exactly greening a city, but it's uh, it's part of it, I suppose, isn't it? Oh, definitely part of it. And I think, I think all the other parts of it of, you know, maintaining um, bird habitat and um, diversity maintaining the diversity of the indigenous plants and all of those things fit in. There's places that are suitable for food growing and there's, and not everyone is going to be interested in food growing, you know, it's, but there's plenty of people who are interested who don't have the resources and I think that's, that's something that we have to look at through um, planning of our cities. The other side of that is that in supermarkets and even I think at the market sometimes you see 
fruit available that you know isn't in season. So something's happening that allows that fruit to be there, I guess, or vegetable or whatever it is. Yes, well, it's been brought from a long way away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> or frozen for a long time or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, just recently, speaking of greening, there was an American expert. He, 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 he oversees the famous Central Park, um, and he came to Australia. He's president of the American Planning Association, former president of the American Planning Association. But he gave us a bit of advice for Melbourne. He said our parks were too too bland really we need more attractions and the attractions he listed um, were things like um, merry-go-rounds outdoor theatres uh, nature observatories boathouses restaurants ice skating rinks uh, castles swimming pools uh, kayaking etc all of which sounds like turning our parks into commercial little enterprises yeah, well, certainly you won't find me supporting that that view. I think there's, again, there's got to be that diversity. And if you haven't got a really nice, quiet park to go to where you can be contemplative and you don't have to think about someone trying to sell you something, hmm. then I think we've really come to a bad, bad end. For I think it's more and more shopping is being promoted through our society as an activity you know people don't a lot of people don't go for a walk they go and window shop or things like that mm. well, but development you really in... must maintain those other areas because they're so important to the mental health of the of society to be able to get away from all that claptrap well and developments I, like gone... south bank in melbourne and docklands in particular i mean they they're just really commercial enterprises and they do n- damn all for for greening the city and they do nothing also for real proper urban planning i would have thought well no i mean they didn't even put a school in at docklands did they <laughs> no, no all absolutely. these people who are going to live in apartments don't have babies you know <laughs> i don't know where they anyway yes it's not for human life for you know it's not a proper balanced society so and people living in those apartments throughout the city they are using the the city's parks in a as their open space we can't just can't we can't afford to commercialize all that open space it's so critical seeing the developers have put people into boxes and you know without any access to any form of green space within the development all those people are walking out into the city to, to get that. I think our parks are really well utilised as just as places for people to go and have a wander away from the built environment. You don't think we should be turning them into little commercial enterprises then, uh, then Pam? Oh, did you, did you get that through <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I remember, I remember an open space planner saying to me once... There's this real problem about open space, even with the name, I think, because it's people see it and they think, open space, what can we put there? Hmm. And they just have to value it for what it is. <laughs> That's right, exactly, yes. Well, there's actually a... Um there's one of those, there's a developer who um, advertises, I, ha- I only never hear the ad, but I see them on during the football or something, they advertise often during sports, which I do watch, and um, their slogan is bringing land to life, and 
the inference obviously is that as long as long as there's nothing on it, it's not actually alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you think of the areas where all those, um, you know, the major areas of housing development in out to the north and west of the city, the the ones I'm most familiar with, and the grasslands and, mm. and the plants that and the growling grass frog and all the. All the yes, the flora and fauna. It's, it's in fact it's the last yeah. remnants of, and that's what they're now destroying. Yes, exactly. And those those developments that are being built. I I was working out at Melton Shire Council for a while and um, did a survey out there. I was working with on food security and uh, did a survey. I think it was something like forty percent of households could not access any food without using a car because there's no public transport there's Mm. no walkable distances all of that so if you didn't have a car to use you didn't need basically that's apart from the money involved um what do you think of the historical um garden city movement the what the garden city movement in terms of the, uh, I'm not really clear what you're talking about. Are you talking about the integrated design of housing and gardens? Yeah, that has that. Um, yeah, relu- you know, roots to weirdo religions. Ah, well, I think there's a lot of more modern alternatives, and if you look at a number of, there's quite a lot of work done in Scandinavia in particular on um, housing developments that actually incorporate gardening and you don't have to belong to any weirdo religion. (laughs) 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 But I think that idea of building, designing, so, I mean, designing, using an area of land, um, designing the the housing for proper solar access, passive solar access, and, and also designing in areas of... For use for gardening, I think I think that's critical, really. Brought to you by a weirdo religion like capitalism. Um, but well, yes. Pam, <laughs> just to finish up, Pam, you mentioned a couple of places you're doing more than at the moment. Mentioned Yarra, and I think the other one was which one? Darabin, did you say? Um, yeah. Who are currently just just to finish up? What are they trying to do or aiming to do with their programs? Well, I think I think the idea that people. I think there's that link to health and well-being, and so growing food um, adds adds the you know the health the nutritional thing to the health and well-being equation, and just the activity of gardening um, is is in there with ticks. So I think what they're trying to do is support that happening throughout their cities. So you've got the health benefits, you've got the environmental benefits coming out of that for their population. So in Darabin, they value um, home people who are growing vegetables in their own, on their own land, not just community gardens. But it's, a, it's valuing that heritage, the, the knowledge, the local knowledge, all of those things. So it's saying, it's saying to people, you're doing something that is important to this community. Mm. And Darabin's doing that really, really well. Yarra, Yarra too has had um, an urban agriculture program for a number of years. It's always fragile in terms of getting the, uh, some budget for a person to work on it. 
they've they've opened up gardens even if they're in you know boxes in the street throughout throughout Yarra. So I think I think they're recognising that people have this interest. Not everyone, it never will be everyone, but but they're they're accepting that it's a a valid form of recreation that should be supported by council and that it has all these benefits to the community health and well-being. It's interesting that a lot of the, albeit very expensive but albeit an upmarket but getting rave review restaurants at the moment tend to be producing their own or using local or their own grown um, produce um, as part of their menus so that, that's that's very much in the, in the go at the moment and I just, I just find that interesting that um, that you know the better the better reviewed restaurants are actually growing their own, and they you know the, one of their selling points is that everything's grown almost outside the restaurant door. Well, foraging their own. Yeah. 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 There's a restaurant in Melbourne um, that actually forages, forages uh, bulrushes from the Yarra. Hopefully, from a clean bit of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I'd, yes, I went out. I'd I shake the bulrush before I ate a while ago. And they had um, they had corn salad as a or mache. It's got a few names in the, on the plate. And I said, "Oh, I grow this at home." They said, "Oh, have you got lots? <laughs> Bring it in and start selling." <laughs> but there, I think there's a enterprise potential there. But that all also has to be worked out. And that was one of the things, both about. Cuba and the Argentinian thing, where in Cuba, if you were a member of the um, urban ag- agriculture program, you could work, you could fill your wheelbarrow and walk out on the street and sell a wheelbarrow's worth of produce. And in Argentina, they actually set up major marketing systems for the food produced in the city. So we haven't even touched that. I mean, imagine mm. if you were on the dole and you mani- you're a good veggie grower. What would happen to you if you walked out into the street and tried to sell vegetables? You'd have food food uh, safety standards about... You'd have to have a registered business, and on and on it goes. And you get a writ from, writ from Coles and Woolworths in about two minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Pam, look, thanks for that today, and um, thanks for your time. And, okay. And good luck with all that Bye. campaigning out there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Pam. See you. Bye. Okay, Pam Morgan there, who's, um, as you can tell, quite enthusiastic about such matters, and um, and they are important, and it's a growing movement. There's no question of it. And you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. The time is 9.38, and we're going to listen to Formidable Vegetable Sound System with their song... The Edge. Very good, and we'll be back with um, with Kate Shaw talking about this new play called A Social Service. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM, and that was The Edge from Formidable Vegetable Sound System. Following our discussion about vegetables. And um, I got a press release last week from uh, the Malthouse Theatre, so it's one of those things that says what a wonderful thing it is. So there's nothing bad in the press release at all. But a play called A Social Service is coming up at the theatre from August 11 to 21. Policy research informs a typical look at public housing, it says across the top, and it says it's a scathing and hilarious look at Australia's public housing system devised by Maverick of Independent Theatre Nicola Gunn in response to policy and testimonies from residents. 
it goes on and she co-created it with uh, David Woods and it takes us to take a look at what said that already. The piece has been developed following on-field's um, on-site field work including interviews with residents and consultation with one of Australia's leading academics in urban geography, Dr Kate Shaw. You're one of the leading ones, Kate. And, oh, you didn't know that. <laughs> and you go on to say a few things. Much of my research looks, etc. But rather than me quote you, why don't we quote? Why don't you quote yourself, um, Kate? Um, <laughs> the, the play um, we mentioned, Kate. But I forget. Keep are you. Are you still a research fellow or something? What, what's your What's your title at Melbourne these days? Oh dear, I'm, I'm, I'm an I'm an Australian Research Council Future Fellow, um, which is a so you're not yet a fellow. That- yeah, that's what it sounds like. I've, 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 I've actually taken it off my cards because everybody says the same thing. And it's, I mean, the joke is wearing thin. Yeah, know, it must be awful. Now. Yeah, I'm sorry I said um, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scheme, it's a very generous scheme that, that funds uh, researchers to um, to have their heads, really, and, 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 uh, and, and um, write books um, and come out and do, you know, seriously good stuff. So I'm doing my best. All right, and, and about this play, you were consulted. Tell us something about the play. Well, I, I didn't know Nicola or David. They, they, they contacted me and said they're writing this play, and, and as you know, I'm very sympathetic to um, cultural production in, in, in all its forms. I think there are, you know, there, there's interesting potential for, for, that, for, for alternative ways of exploring ideas. Um, and, uh, and and Nicola and David were both interested in pursuing um, public housing estate redevelopments and the politics around that, which is <laughs> an interesting theme for a play. It's a two-person play, just the two of them. And they're both and in it, according they, to this. Yeah, they, they both wrote it yeah. and they're both in it. Yes, yes, they're, they're, doing, they're doing the whole thing. I mean, I think you know, there's a bit of poor theatre going on and, and, and they're really... Uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that, actually. I haven't seen the set. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be very interesting. They're, I mean, they're very bright, intelligent, switched-on people, and, and I was immediately engaged with them when, when, uh, when, when, they, uh, when, when they came and wanted to have a chat. I mean, they're asking all of the right questions. Um, they're focusing mainly on the Carlton and Fitzroy housing estate. Uh, estates, and so the redevelopment on on Carlton, of course, and the politics around the um, the intended uh, redevelopment of Fitzroy, uh, which is now, <clears throat> well, as we know, either on the back burner or or, um, or off the agenda altogether, depending on who you talk to. Um, so, so, so it was an exploration of oh, the motivations um, of, of, the, of, of the bureaucracy and the politicians and the responses from the residents and, and a, a, a real um, exploration of the various characters involved in various... I mean, it's really just looking at the very multiple um, perspectives you can, ha- you can have on something like that, but they're, they're not approaching it from anything like a you know a neutral, then they're certainly not pretending to be some kind of vacuum, and I don't think they're pretending to come up with an answer. It's just, it, it, it looks complex and, and interesting. Mm. And in, your, in, your, in the quotes that you have here, it says a genuinely you say Kate, a genuinely diverse city is an equitable city, and public housing must be part of this. Uh, their work explores concepts of belonging, community, and the interaction surrounding public housing in the gentrifying inner city. A fascinating perspective. So, yeah. Do you want to comment more than what you just said? 
<laughs> I think she said it really. But, uh, I mean, they clearly they, they care about social justice, um, and so I, I mean, of, of course, my my view, and I sort of take this from the you know the the, the, uh, the hackneyed idea of the creative city, and I say a genuinely creative city. Um, far from being the gentrifying city that that um, you know urbanologists like Richard Florida would 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 uh, describe, I say if it's to be genuinely creative, it, uh, it it has to be diverse. There has to be a real multiplicity of voices coming out, and if it's to be to be diverse, it has to be equitable. There has to be policy focus on on providing for people that the market does not provide for, um, which is obviously the lower end. Um, spectrum, the lower, you know, socioeconomic spectrum. So public housing is a crucial part of that. Um, I mean, that's my view of it. And, and, and I think what Nicola and, and David are doing is taking that idea of creativity and, and, and pursuing its possibly, you know, sort of trans- transformative potential. You know, I mean, you, you, you can you can uh, you can question that, and you can play around with that. But I think I think most definitely there is a real role for performance, music, comedy, in in taking um, memes and themes that that uh, that float around and turning them in a slightly different way that um, makes people look at them differently. At the very least, allows people to go, actually, that's something serious that I care about, and and I'm not going to feel like a, you know, an, an undergraduate sort of, you know, um, politics student for, for um, starting to care about and talk about it. Mm. And, um, of course, you mentioned the Carlton one. Now, at Carlton in the Rathdown Street redevelopment where all public houses became part public, a bit of public and a lot of private uh, with a private developer, the so-called mix they said was going to be wonderful has been sorted out by totally dividing the poor from the wealthy, so to speak. So, yes, that's so, a fact. So, so it uh, it doesn't work all that well. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, that uh, you, you could you could spend a long time talking about this, and we don't have that, that much time. But my, my my sort of brief summary of it is: if the so-called benefits of social mix of putting low-income public housing tenants next door to um, you know, middle-class private residents, whether they're renting or whether they own, own, own their own properties. If there are benefits to come from that, uh, and, and <clears throat> as you know, and we've talked about this before, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that there are, but what benefits are presumed to come from that, the sort of the rub-off, Role modelling ethic and the possibility of getting work and, and 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 higher education standards are premised on social mixing occurring. I mean, at the core of the social mix idea is that there has to actually be genuine interaction, and maybe that genuine interaction and learning about you know how other people live and really kind of seeing the insides of their lives might precipitate changes in other people's lives and that can go in both directions and yet look it's possible i mean i would say hello now we seem to have lost you kate all right you disappeared oh sorry you you disappeared there for a second yeah oh i'm sorry (laughs) um so i was just saying 
Um, what was I saying? Um, what, what did I get to? You're you got- talking about poor people having to reach with uh, rich jerks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to the extent that uh, there are benefits from social mix, you know, the, the, the rub-off role modelling, the, you know, the higher educational achievement, um, you know, better prospective job, you know, getting jobs and so on. To the extent that they, those benefits are derived from the concept of social mix, that mix is premised on social mixing. It's, it's premised on actual interactions that occur between the public tenants and the private residents. It requires, you know, really learning to understand each other and, and, and seeing the inside of each other's lives and, and, and maybe some benefits might come from that. Now, mm. my personal view is that you're probably like more likely to achieve higher educational standards and better job prospects by giving people training and, and, and access to affordable education and um, actually creating jobs that they can get. But <clears throat> put that aside for one moment. If there are benefits to be gained from social mix, it is premised on social mixing, on interaction occurring. Now, at the Carlton Estate, and this is what is so ludicrous and what exposes the ideology behind the redevelopment program, they are separated not only... Um, like floor by floor, which was which is which, and not only block by block, which is the case at Kensington, but precinct by precinct, yes. with a wall dividing the new public housing from the um, well, the new public housing from the new private housing, uh, with a private courtyard, uh, which is a- accessible only to the private residents, not to the public residents. Yeah, well, in the US, in the US, where they've you know, tried it, well, a lot of people try. They have a system where if a developer gives 10% or something to what is affordable, whatever affordable means in parenthesis, housing, they get some sort of advantages like they're able to build more units, etc. But in many of them, they have what is actually called, literally called a poor door, where those who get the subsidised rent or whatever it is, um, go in through that door rather than mix with the uh, the people they shouldn't be mixing with. Yes, indeed. And at Carlton, they also have separate entrances. So, I mean, it's, just, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? To, if, if you believe the social mix rhetoric and you look very closely at actually how the thing has been designed, you can see that it's really not about that and it's not about the so-called benefits of social mix at all. It's about something quite different. And so I, I think what, what would you say it's about? to explore... Sorry? What would you say so it's con- about? Say that again. If it's not about social mixing, what would you say it's about? I think it is about... Um, well, actually, I think it's about financing. I, I, think, I think it's about governments so unwilling to um, lay out any further expenditure or any expenditure um, for 40 years on, on public housing um, that the only way that necessary upgrades are able to be um, carried, carried out is by the sale of public land. Uh, and the profits that are gained from the sale, the sale of the private housing, uh, supposedly go back into the estate and to, you know, by by doing um, public housing improvements. That's the most generous assessment that you can make. Yes, and um, just on another thing, I know you're interested in. You'll be pleased to know that um, that James Packer this week um, put in new, these latest plans for his casino in Sydney at Barangaroo. 
and it's now 271 metres high and it's gone out to 610 car spots in what is supposed to be a public transport enclave, 350 hotel rooms, etc., etc., and it takes up all the proposed open space. So isn't that wonderful? Is there a question? <laughs> no, there isn't. I, just, I know that you, we've talked about this before. I know you'd be thrilled to know that he's put this final plan in and it's now many times bigger than the original and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and taking more and more public space. I don't know if I told you about an interview that I had with one of the lead architects of, uh, of, of, of um, Len Lease for the Barangaroo development and I said to him once, you know, where, where are the... Where are the small bars and the bookshops and the record shops and the dry cleaners and <clears throat> the, the the gyms and the yoga studios and the, um, the you know the, the shoemakers and the <clears throat> light makers and the and and it, all, all, all of the things um, that actually draw people to cities when people go to a city for something where, where is all that stuff? He said, Oh, there will be none. <laughs> Oh, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> it's like South Bank and Stockland and anywhere else. That's it. Um, they won't be able to afford the rent. No, Kate, look, we're out of time. But look, just, just again, the, the play is called A Social Service. It's August 11 to 29 at Malthouse Theatre. And obviously it does sound like something that um, that we'd enjoy. I think so, yeah. I think it's worth having a look. I mean, that, yeah, that, they're full of potential and it's, it, it'll be surprising, I'm sure. I've got no, no idea what to expect, but I, I, I think I'm, I'm preparing to be impressed. Oh, good. <laughs> well, look, we'll, we'll go along with being impressed as well then. Um, and, Kate, look, we'll, we'll get you back. We haven't had you on for ages on this program, but we'll get you back uh, relatively shortly and, uh, and talk more about planning Melbourne. Good. It's always lovely to talk to you. Okay, thanks, Kate. Kate Shaw there, who said whatever she is, a future something or other, um, at uh, at Melbourne. And we're out of time almost, Corey. We uh, are out of time. We're back to a first Wednesday next week. You know, that means John, John, John McPherson. McPherson and transport. And the time is 9.57. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Or maybe you're listening to 3cr.org.au. And we're going to go out with um, Soul Coughing with their song, Ah, Zoom Zip. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.